through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings, and welcome to the 50th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this month of June 2020. I'm April Now, reaching out to you from the black fly and mosquito-filled deep woods of northern Ontario. This month's edition focuses on the social impacts of the virus outbreak on women, not only as the virus itself spreads to impact our physical health, but also as sectors of our society have shut down and how that has impacted our social-emotional health through safer-at-home orders and social distancing practices. You'll hear excerpts of an interview Thistle did with Vaishnavi Sundar, Indian feminist filmmaker and activist, about what it has been like in her home country of India and in her region for women as the virus outbreak spreads and social distancing norms are put into place. We will also hear from Diane Fisher, a massage therapist from Ohio, who spoke with WLRN about her experiences of being a non-essential worker, navigating unemployment, staying in touch with her work colleagues, and how the virus outbreak has impacted her emotional health and the health of others around her in her community. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics except for separatist feminism is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, here's Dana Vitalishova with women's news from around the globe for this Thursday, June the 4th, 2020. The U.S. Education Department has determined that Connecticut's policy allowing males to compete with girls in high school sports violates the civil rights of female athletes. This decision came in response to a complaint filed last year by female track athletes Selena Soule, Chelsea Mitchell, and Alana Smith. These young women argued that the male athletes had an unfair physical advantage over the girls. However, the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference refused to comply with the Education Department's decision. Thus, the office said it will, quote, either initiate administrative proceedings to suspend, terminate, or refuse to grant or continue and defer financial assistance, end of quote, to the conference, or refer the cases to the U.S. Department of Justice. The Hungarian president has signed a bill that will outlaw the change of sex in legal documents. Despite protests during which people publicly burned their birth certificates and despite criticism of the bill by the European Parliament and the United Nations, the bill thus became law. 
the new law replaces the word nem, which in Hungarian stands for both sex and gender, with the term suleteshinem, aka birth sex, and defines it as, quote, biological sex based on primary sex characteristics and chromosomes, end of quote. The biggest Hungarian LGBT organization, called Hatter, declared they refuse to accept this law and call on the public defender of rights, Akos Kuzma, quote, to initiate the nullification of the law via the constitutional court, end of quote. A British study has linked self-harm in girls and young women with poverty. According to the National Center for Social Research, women aged 16 to 34 from the poorest backgrounds are five times more likely to self-harm than their more affluent peers. There is also evidence that self-harm in young women and girls is on the rise. Between 2000 and 2014, the proportion of females aged 16 to 24 who self-harmed rose from 7% to 20%. The link to poverty appears strong. According to Natsen research, self-harm is three times higher in women who have fallen behind on utility payments or have had utilities disconnected than among those who haven't. Furthermore, according to The Guardian, the suicide rate among girls and young women aged 10 to 24 has risen in Britain. In 2018, it was the highest on record. A US medical study suggests COVID-19 attacks the placenta in pregnant women. Researchers from Northwestern University in Chicago found that women infected with COVID-19 had higher rates of placental injury than the healthy population. However, all babies born to 15 of the 16 women studied were healthy. One woman had a miscarriage, but the researchers were unable to determine whether it was caused by COVID-19. 46 babies recently born by surrogate mothers in Ukraine were left in this country after their Spanish parents failed to collect them due to COVID-19 quarantine measures. Andrea Nobre reported for website 4w.pub that the babies were quote-unquote ordered by Spanish families in Ukraine because commercial surrogacy is illegal in Spain. The Ukrainian surrogacy company Biotex.com now stores the quote-unquote excess babies in hotels and private homes with no official legal guardian. According to Nobre, there is also risk that the clients would never collect the children. The reason is that many people who quote-unquote order a baby born to a surrogate desire to obtain a newborn, not a child who is a few months old. On May 11, the founder and one of the two main ringleaders in the South Korean Anthrum case was finally arrested. The 24-years-old Young Wook Moon is allegedly responsible for creating and running chat rooms on the encrypted app called Telegram, where sadistic sexual videos made by extorted girls were exchanged and sold. Earlier this year, another 24-year-old male ringleader of the Anthrums, Cho Ju Bin, was arrested as well as two accomplices. 
Both of these are teenage males. One is 16, another 18 years old. The South Korean public is concerned with the low age of the perpetrators. In another recent case similar to the Nth Room, the nine culprits who ran a pornographic Discord channel were all minors, one of them just 12 years old. Due to COVID-19 school closures, many more girls than usual have become victims of genital mutilation, child marriage, and sexual violence. According to human rights NGOs, when girls in quote-unquote developing countries go to school, they are more protected against exploitation and violence. Thus, because of schools closing in Tanzania, according to The Guardian, many more girls became victims of genital mutilation. Furthermore, in the Sahel region, the lockdown caused a surge in child marriages. A UNICEF official is quoted as saying, it's a real worry that the girls won't come back. The financial stresses might be even harder and families will be looking for girls to get married earlier. On the night of May 23rd, a young woman in the Ukrainian town of Kagarlik near Kiev was taken to the police station for interrogation in a case of petty theft. During the interrogation, two policemen tortured, strangled and repeatedly raped the 26-year-old while drinking vodka. Thus, the policemen tried to force the woman to confess to a theft she didn't commit. Subsequently, both police officers were fired and placed under arrest. Next, the Ukrainian Minister of Interior, Arsen Avakov, dissolved the entire police department in Kagarlik, consisting of 60 people. Now, members of the Ukrainian Verkhovna Rada are collecting signatures to have the Minister of Interior deposed. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, June 4th, 2020. I'm Dana Vitalo Share your news stories and tips with us by emailing wlrnewscontact at gmail.com and letting us know what's going on.
That was Ivor with her song Far Away. Now we turn to a clip of an interview Thistle did with Vaishnavi Sundar, feminist filmmaker and activist from India who spoke with WLRN about the social impacts the pandemic is having on women in her country and region of the world. Be sure to check out WLRN's WordPress site under the Interviews tab for the full interview, wherein Vaishnavi talks about an emergency contraception campaign she started in her city, independent radical feminist organizing in neighborhoods, the caste system in her country, and more. I'd like to give a big WLRN shout-out to our sister Vaishnavi, who is doing amazing work. Yay, we love <laughs> Hi, Crystal. Nice to have you back on WLRN's Airwaves. Welcome. This is like home, so thank you. <laughs> oh, nice. So, at the last time we talked, the pandemic was just starting, and so we didn't hardly mention it in our interview, but now two or three months have gone by, and a lot has happened. Can you tell us about your country and what it's like to be living under the pandemic, where where you are? I should start off by saying that personally, very personally, okay, and I'm speaking with so much privilege and I understand that. Pandemic has been the best thing that happened to me <laughs> because there are fewer people on the road, there's less honking, the dogs are happy, you know, the, the birds are out and all of those things in that context. And I, and I find myself to be stuck at home most of the time because I work from home. So with all that in mind, it's really nice to wake up in the morning and hear the birds chirp. And, um, you know, I have a lot of these dogs on the street that I sort of take care of, feed and everything. It's nice to have them not worry about, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, a car that's, uh, you know, swinging past in a, in a, in a, in a really uh, illegal speed, you know. So all that is sort of a plus for me. And I... Pandemic or not, I have pretty much been homebound. I like to just work 24-7. And uh, that way, it's been personally very rewarding. And, uh, you know, um, I know that I am speaking with so much privilege, but I guess you can sort of take this as a very exclusive positive that I personally experience. It's obviously not the general opinion of the country. About what's happening in India overall, we are a huge country um, and it's extremely impossible for a government to sort of impose regulations in a way that we can turn things around in a short span of time uh, because of our population and because of the way we have women from one state traveling all the way south to another state for the purpose of livelihood. And then they end up settling down here. They have children here. And then now they're in a position where they can't go back home, nor can they stay here anymore because they don't have anywhere to stay. So while on the, you know, on the urban side, things are pretty much okay because uh, delivery services are functioning. You know, the essentials are there. Medicines are available. Hospitals are available on call and all of that. But that's just a very, very small minority benefiting from it. Uh, when I speak about the minor majority, um, they are, you know, construction laborers, uh, manual scavengers, housemaids, house help, and women who are basically working on daily wage labor. You know, for them, things are definitely not good at all. 
And in that, I should also talk about a lot of uh, women that are trafficked into the sex trade, where they have completely been stripped of any form of livelihood at the moment because obviously you can't prostitute yourself at a, at a, during a pandemic. There are some really horrible things that are happening at the moment and the state seems to not be able to sort of completely put things in control. For example, there was a, girl, there was a lady who had a two-month-old child, a male child, and she offered to sell it to another couple, a childless couple, for just rupees 22,000. And that's, that's nothing, that's nothing. And the reason they say they did that, although the transaction did not take place because somebody intervened and they stopped it, just think about the number of people that are trying to benefit out of people's depravity and, uh, you know, uh, of people's plight at, the, plight at this time. There was apparently a middleman who tried and convinced this uh, lady who's basically trying by foot to walk from one state to another. And she's got this child and the child's crying. They don't have food and everything. And the man's like, you know what? You've got this child. You've got no food. How will you take care of the child? Why don't you give it to this family? They are childless and they'll take care of your child. And they're like, well, at least my child's going to have a better family, um, probably will be educated and stuff. So the woman was actually willing to sell her son for 22,000 rupees. This is one really, it affected me rather profoundly. This is one incident. And there was another incident where, yeah. Oh, I wanted to take it back to prostitution under the pandemic. Uh, can you tell us, uh, what the legal status is of prostitution in India pre-pandemic and now during the pandemic? Has there been a change in the law? Has the government said no prostitution because of the pandemic? Or are people not, women are not uh, falling into it as much now because of the pandemic? Or can you just give us a little bit deeper of a report on mm. that? Most of these women are um, really poor and they are in this trade because somebody put them there, trafficked them into another city and they put them there and they can't escape because there are pimps and johns that would, you know, find you, put you right back. You literally cannot escape it at all. The sex trade, so to speak, has been uh, on a standstill right now because of the pandemic. But that is not because the government intervened and said things like, you know, for the well-being of the people, maybe we should just take a step back and stop it. No, none of that, because we have far more pressing issues to deal with. People are dying. So they couldn't really bother about which industry can be allowed to function at this time, which industry cannot be. Well, it is an industry in India. So what's happening is uh, all these trafficked women are stuck in this really tiny matchbox-like house they may or may not have customers. It's happening in many folds. They may or may not have customers. The only way that they're going about it is maybe I can charge less and maybe just do it in a way that it is not intimate, where there is no exchange of, you know, uh, maybe there's no kissing or there's no hugging or, you know, things like that where you breathe and are in close contact. I, it's it's inhuman, but they do not have a choice. And there are many videos that are surfacing where citizens are reaching out to these red light areas, as we call them. They're going and they're having these women speak in the camera. And the constant position that everybody is taking is, what can we do? 
what do we do? We we don't know what to do. We need to eat. Otherwise, we would just probably not survive at all. And we've got children to take care. Young girls that are prostituted have tra- been trafficked to take care. What do we do? In that regard, there is a phenomenal organization run by this woman called Ruchira Gupta um, that has been, despite, despite uh, it being a grave risk to her health and her volunteers' health, they're all outside on road trying to feed these women that are trafficked and their children and in the process trying to sort of teach them some games and so on and so forth. But the government um, hasn't had any um, interest in sort of looking into this. And to be honest, even before pandemic, it's like a hush-hush situation. We're a conservative country and not a lot of people would like to sort of acknowledge that such a industry is thriving in a country like ours. And you probably have people that are in the positions of power making use of these services. So nobody will openly sort of challenge it or say that now is probably a good time for the women to just completely stop doing it once and for all. We will take all of them and rehabilitate them, find them a better employment opportunity, so on and so forth. But then again, there are a lot of other problems because most of these women are very, very addicted to substance. They end up doing a lot of substance abuse. So when you sort of take them away from that and if you strip them of an opportunity to procure their drug, you can imagine what it does to your body as well. So people can be extremely desperate for some money uh, in order to get that one little shot or, you know, to just have food, maybe. So this is, this is a countrywide situation. So there, like, much like in the U.S., we have some state jurisdiction and then we have the center that sort of has like an umbrella sort of law and everything in place. But then the state can intervene and sort of uh, help Kerala, the neighboring state, did a wonderful job in uh, controlling the virus as well as taking care of these extremely oppressed minorities in their country. So in that, the sex workers, so to speak, were also duly taken care of. They were fed. Uh, the state managed to give them some form of, uh, um, what shall we say, some sort of a remuneration, so to speak, to sort of, you know, take care of their basic expenditure, like by medicine, sanitary pads, anything, you know, things like that. But in mine, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not even come up. People are talking about it. Liberals and activists are writing about it. But not a lot of uh, action has taken place. But in the center... Uh, a group of women have started the signature campaign where they are demanding uh, the home ministry and the finance ministry to sort of look into this matter and sort of provide some sort of a per person honorarium of sorts where it's enough for a person to have three course meal a day. But then again, there are all kinds of problems in that because by, by claiming that this is their only livelihood, you're also sort of making that an industry, right? It's, it's a, it's a, double-edged sword and the signature campaign had some 10,000, 20,000 people that had signed it and it, no, nobody knows yet what the center has decided to do with it, do with the request, but uh, there are there's also a crowdfunding campaign going on where people are sort of volunteering and giving out some excess cash and which is then taken by these volunteers and, uh, you know, food is being made available, clothes underwear, uh, sanitary pad, and things like that are being made available. But then to be very, very honest with you, it's it's not even the tip of the iceberg um, yeah. about how dangerous it is for the really vulnerable women in India. 
What, what about other impacts of the pandemic on women in your country, women that may be living at home? What, what is a typical home life like for, say, a young woman your age? Um, and what might she be facing because of the pandemic? Sure. Um, if she is employed, she is now just homebound, working from home. Um, a lot of responsibilities obviously fall on her shoulder. So if she also happens to have a child, now childcare is her responsibility aside from doing her office work as well. So she's technically working from home, but she's working her office things at home as well as she's running the home by working from home as well. So that's a lot of burden in stay-at-home uh, women at this situation and also um, somebody my age, if they are married, uh, that, and if, if, if they are living with a partner that is uh, prone to, you know, abuse you, doesn't matter if it is sexual, physical, or emotional, the cases have skyrocketed. The state had uh, initiated a bunch of helplines. It's going to a point where they are not able to have enough manpower to handle the number of incoming calls. That's how many uh, domestic violence cases are shooting up isn't isn't a man allowed to rape his wife in india that's legal right yeah technically yes according to the domestic violence act 2005 sexual violence is also considered a crime but then when you when you bring it to court nobody would because it's a family issue it's a private affair nobody would but even if because it's a, it's so much shame for the woman, right? It's never a shame for the man. And then he can just walk away scot-free saying, well, she's my wife, she's my property, I can do whatever the hell I want with her. But for her to go to a court and say I was raped uh, is not an easy procedure at all with or without pandemic, whether or not she's married or whether it is somebody absolutely stranger to her. So in India, marital rape is has not been explicitly made illegal where if you are in a in a violent home where the abuser's primary um, weapon against you is sexual violence, you literally do not have any recourse. Um, not only are we working on 50% staff at the moment, so many police people and uh, you know frontline workers are themselves affected by corona, right? So not a lot of people are working in full attendance. So in general, the number of uh, people that are in the law and order has significantly come down as it is. And in that, you can imagine there are uh, migrants that are traveling from one state to another, and then there are uh, rich people that need protection, and then there are people in the hospital that need to be taken care of, and then there are these beat police that has to constantly be on the road. In all of these things, a woman's situation is never a priority. It has always been like that. It is always at the bottom. When when you exhausted every other problem in the country, maybe they will consider, oh, domestic violence, let's look into that. How is that uh, going on in the country? So it's pretty bad. And uh, I recently interviewed somebody who is part of the All India Democratic Women's Association. She's a politician. She's a women's rights activist. Her name is Vasuki Umanath. She sort of broke down the act in a way that a common a regular person can understand what the rights are and during pandemic even though situation is harder there are organizations like hers that sort of doubling up um, by you know with the help of volunteers in at least sort of providing some sort of an immediate support you know just go and knock at their door and like 
diffuse the situation when the abuse is happening at that time, you know, or have a sort of a whisper circle around your neighborhood where, where if I know that my neighbor is constantly abused because I keep hearing it, it's up to me. And then they're creating awareness as to how it is everybody's problem. I love problem. that. Love that yeah. because it's horizontally organizing from the grassroots in the neighborhood and people being encouraged to take care of each other because they're all in the same area. I love that. Yeah, and it's a, it's a it's a it's a personal choice, really. Um, but you'd also have to understand that men will not be interested in doing this. It will always be the women. And you can imagine if a woman walks up to a neighbor's house and the man opens the door and shoes her away, there is only very little she can do. So it's a matter of you going and knocking at their door, and that is enough time for the woman to go run away into a room and lock herself in. was Heal Me by Melissa Etheridge. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview with Diane Fisher, massage therapist, tarot card reader, and healer living in Ohio. This will caught up with Diane via Skype last week to ask her how she and her colleagues are faring during the pandemic. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I've known you through the years through women's music festivals and gatherings, and I've known you as a tarot card reader a healer and a massage therapist. And um, I've asked you to come on to this show in particular because I've been attending the wonderful greetings that you've been giving to our community online and in the mornings, especially under lockdown. And I'm wondering if you can just talk to us a little bit about 
your women's community, your massage therapists community that stayed in touch as you've been non-essential workers um, and gone through all of the, the changes during this lockdown period and what the social impacts have been like for you? It's been a lot, right? It's been a lot for all of us in so many different ways. And I'm happy to be here and to, you know, share from my perspective and some of the perspectives that I'm familiar with. And what I know is that this pandemic situation is so different for every single one of us. And I think that for me is the thing that it's amplified the most is that we are all here on this planet together and we are all connected and yet we definitely are all on our own journey so it's this interesting for me um more of that push pull of the connectedness of humanity and the individuality of of spirit and still connectedness if that makes any sense um and so uh yeah like I don't, I don't even know. It was weird to, I remember the very beginning of March, a friend of mine was canceling her trip to California for a couple of weeks. Um, that she was supposed to go out and visit friends. And then she was worried about coming home and seeing her mom and would she be able to. And I really was pretty clueless at that point. I knew that there was, you know, this virus that was coming around, but I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. I was, you know, I kind of thought she was overreacting. And then all of a sudden, like many of us, like, whoa, oh, 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 wait, this is really a thing. Um, and I saw my last massage client on Friday, March 13th. And have not had my hands on anyone since then. Uh, now, I, I'm blessed. I'm um, in sheltering in place with my partner and, and friend who, um, not partner technically, we call ourselves not girlfriends. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but I have a space where, um, right, where I can get hugs and where, like, so I, I feel blessed about that. Um, but for so many of us body workers and touch therapists, like, who aren't able to touch, that has been a huge part of the challenge, right? And for people who are not touch therapists, but individuals, humans who need touch and who have been quarantined at home alone or staying at home alone or safer at home alone or whatever the language is in your state or community, right? But yeah, that, that lack of touch is, it's so important, I've read that there's been an increase in people adopting pets at this time because, and it might be connected to that. You know, I certainly have been going to my cat a lot more and playing with my cat a lot more and snuggling with her and petting her a lot more during this time because I'm a preschool worker. Mm. And so if you're around toddlers, you know that they climb all over you and there's touch is a big part of being around preschoolers and I don't, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. And so having a pet, <laughs> I think is, is really therapeutic during this time for people. Mm -hmm. And I hope that all of those people who have adopted during this time stay committed after the um, safer at home orders are lifted. Mm. We integrate yeah. into the community. I was wondering if you could talk about what it was like, because 
on one of your in one of your morning greetings, you talked about how your colleagues have been talking to one another via Zoom about the business of massage therapy and just coping and offering support to one another. And yeah. and some of your colleagues are going back to work and some are not. And you know, what are people applying for unemployment? Are you eligible for that? What has that whole thing been like for you and your colleagues? So massage therapy as a field or as a profession is such a unique beast. Um, we are so diverse, right, in, in the field, right, of massage. Some massage therapists work in hospital settings. Some massage therapists work in sports settings or athletic training settings or physical therapy settings. Some work in spa settings. Some work for like massage chains as employees. Some work in chiropractors offices. Some work for themselves as independent practitioners in a variety of settings. So there's never any easy way to talk about massage therapy as a whole, really. Um, and for the most of us, though, we are independent practitioners or sole proprietors, work for ourselves. And um, there have been some eligibilities for unemployment and for some government funds for some folks. I have not received anything yet. I know a few others who have not. Um, again, I'm in a, I'm blessed to be in a situation where I have, you know, some help at home and my office mate who I share a space with is a talk therapist whose business has not been impacted at this. She's been, been able to transition to telehealth. And so she is covering the rent in the office. And for me, that is the blessing that has allowed me to just maintain the, liminal space right the place of like nope i don't have to make a decision about closing the doors of that space i can just hold there and and be in limbo for a while um along the way we um in ohio you know we were shut down for a month um solidly and then uh they have lifted the the shutdown in phases and um, massage therapists are, some massage therapists are back to work here. Uh, there were a few leaders in our field, a few educators in our field who stepped out and shared their thoughts and information um, sort of midway through uh, as we were getting into the um, April, I guess, the middle of April, about what their thoughts were in terms of doing massage then our organization stepped in, like the American Massage Therapy Association and a few others that kind of stepped in and were like, you know, hey, here are our thoughts. Uh, in Ohio, we're guided by the medical board. I have a limited branch medical board license. And so we have to wait for their guidelines. We got them with two days notice. Um, and a lot of requirements for massage, right? So I hosted a couple of conversations on Zoom with, uh, we had about 16 massage therapists the first time, and then I think there were four, four or five of us the second time, where we were just talking it through, because as independent practitioners, many of us kind of feel like we're on our own anyway, and there's no one right answer to these questions, of how we go back and what it looks like for us. So 
Um, yeah. It's, it's been challenging in those ways. So I have heard from, from some folks who have gone back. Um, they're wearing masks or wearing um, the face shields. They're wow. yeah. having to change their clothes in between every client in addition oh to all of the other things. And yeah. so, yeah, it's different. Talk about, because also in these morning greeting talks that you've been giving to our community, um, you've touched on some of the emotional impacts of being under lockdown mm -hmm. and how to take care of ourselves and feel good about the decisions that we're making because sometimes we don't have all the information and some, something that should be healthy for us, like visiting with friends, is now you know, unhealth, unhealthy for us and how to navigate that territory and you know, what those emotional challenges are under lockdown. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, there's so much cognitive dissonance in our world in the first place. And then add in the layers of, you know, this virus and all the information coming from all sides. And, right, it's swirling around us and we don't know what is truth or what's right or what feels best for us necessarily. And so, yeah, I've been talking a lot and reminding myself as much as all of us to really come back to my own body, come back into your body and check in, right? Remember like, oh, are your shoulders elevated? Like, are you wearing them like earrings because you're so tense? Or, right, are they down where they belong a little bit more? And what is your gut telling you? Because we don't listen to our gut sometimes when it really knows the truth for us. Um, because this, this is definitely right. Got all of our emotions swirling and, and it's bringing so many different challenges for people in lots of ways. Um, and I could talk a lot about the length, you know, all the different ways, but there, I think that, that really it's, that's the staying centered, staying grounded, right? So that coming back into the, the center line of your body planting your feet on the ground sometimes i'll like just even sitting here like i'll stomp my feet right and just really reconnect to the ground like if i feel myself sort of like floating away and like i you know so that's something or go outside and get mm -hmm. into nature put your feet in the grass yeah uh, i know a lot of the women love to hug the trees right so hug yeah. trees yeah <laughs> all of that kind of stuff you know and that's funny it's... because that's been a great aspect of what's happened i've seen nature come back in a way this year or i've noticed it more because there are fewer airplanes in the air there are fewer cars on the road i saw a fox trot across the parking lot a couple of weeks ago here oh. in in the city you know, and and so there, there is sort of this um, result of the pandemic to slow down and to come back into the body and to notice nature again, which is, I think, a good thing for our society. You know, so there's like some stressful aspects of what's happened socially with the pandemic. But then there are some ways that I feel like it's really helped us realign with ourselves. I think so. I think so. Absolutely. Right. And I think it's the dynamic push pull that we need in order to have any kind of movement. Right. If we're trying to bust out of a chrysalis, for example, and become a butterfly, like we have to 
get uncomfortable in there, right? And there has to be movement and there's going to be pushing and pulling and and really my understanding is that the caterpillars just turn into a hot mess of goo before a butterfly actually emerges. And so I feel like this pandemic offers us the opportunity to just allow ourselves to just be a puddle of goo and like be present in the muck and to really witness. I think we have an opportunity here to really witness what is happening in the world without blinders on and to just be like, hmm, what's happening? And and are we okay with it all? And what do we want to come forward? What are the aspects that we want to bring out of this situation? And what don't we want to bring out of this situation? Right. Within okay. ourselves and on the big, right? I think it's the micro and macro level. Totally. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our WLRN listeners, Diane, who are largely lesbians and radical feminists? You know, I I just love y'all so much. Even in all of our disagreements, we come together, we connect at the heart, we connect in the ferns or the trees or wherever, online, and... I value all that I have learned from my sisters. Uh, this is incredible because I've learned community in ways that I would never have learned community otherwise. From across the femisphere to women worldwide, worldwide to women worldwide, radical feminist media to break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, radical feminist media to break the sound barrier. This is your, 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 your grassroots community radio station, your radio station, grassroots. This is your grassroots community radio station, women's liberation radio Radio News. news. few months, the world has been turned upside down by the COVID-19 pandemic. In a matter of weeks, countries all around the world went from business as usual to society-wide shutdown, social distancing, and obsession with disinfecting and cleaning our environment, voluntary and government-mandated home quarantines, panic buying, the shuttering of schools, skyrocketing unemployment, and more. Women all over the world are now experiencing the psychological, emotional, and economic impact of this crisis without knowing when or if life will return to pre-pandemic conditions or how to effectively cope with the fallout. Women across several different job sectors have found themselves laid off or furloughed due to the pandemic drying up business in their industry or forcing their workplace to temporarily shut down. The unexpected and sudden loss of their jobs and the uncertainty of when they'll be employed full-time again have added to these women's pandemic-induced anxiety, exacerbating their sense of insecurity and even creating circumstantial depression. While government relief money and increased unemployment benefits are helping to tide many women over for now, there's no telling when they will be able to go back to work, if they'll be able to rejoin their previous industry, or if they'll return to work by the time their unemployment benefits run out. 
For working class and poverty class women, and even for lower middle class women, the COVID-19 pandemic could truly turn out to be an economically devastating blow, one they could not have protected themselves from. Meanwhile, other women have found themselves in the position of having allegedly essential jobs, meaning they have been forced to risk COVID-19 infection just so the rest of society can access certain services and resources. The Center for Economic Policy and Research reported that 64.4% of America's essential workers are women, and 40% are Black, Hispanic, or Asian Pacific Islander. These women work in grocery stores, convenience and other retail stores, pharmacies, public transportation, nursing homes, postal offices, doctor's offices, child care centers, cleaning companies, and hospitals. Most of them are inexcusably underpaid and usually disrespected by the rest of the country as so-called unskilled employees. Yet they're the ones who have been forced to expose themselves to the COVID-19 virus in their workplace, while so many other people in higher paying jobs get to work from home. Several women who work essential jobs have contracted COVID-19 in the U.S. and some have died, the disproportionate number of the dead being black Americans. Women working essential jobs not only worry about their own health and survival, but also about that of the people they live with. Even if women working essential jobs survive in the event of COVID-19 infection, they could still face the medical and economic consequences of severe illness, all for an inadequate paycheck. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed the total failure of our capitalist system to provide most working women with economic security and stability. The U.S. government proved it is aware of how much money the average citizen needs to survive and can provide that money for everyone who needs it in the form of relief money and increased unemployment insurance. Yet the federal minimum wage remains $7.25 an hour, with scores of wealthy and middle-class people insisting it shouldn't be raised. Low-wage workers receiving pandemic unemployment benefits are making more money now than they were at their full-time jobs. The same class-privileged, often white people who have protested their local stay-at-home orders in the last 30 days because they miss eating in restaurants and getting their nails done are also the people who think that the workers who ring up their store purchases, make their Starbucks drinks, and serve them in drive through windows don't deserve to make a comfortable wage or have the same kind of employer-provided benefits that are standard in white-collar sectors. While some low-wage essential workers in the, in the states received hazard pay for at least a little while, during the last several weeks it wasn't enough. And predictably, Congress's gigantic stimulus package ultimately profited and bailed out the country's big corporations, writing checks to those companies that make the average worker's $1,200 look pitiful. The millions of people who have been laid off as a result of this crisis are now without health insurance if they had a policy through their employer, which means they are suddenly vulnerable to overwhelming medical bills they can't afford if they experience an unexpected major medical event, including COVID-19 hospitalization. Why do most American citizens get their private health insurance through an employer instead of through a publicly funded healthcare system? Capitalism. More specifically, the insurance and pharmaceutical industries in this country that profit off the private healthcare system significantly more than they could in a socialized healthcare system. Even Americans who have not lost their health insurance during the pandemic are facing enormous medical bills for COVID-19 hospital stays. Medical debt can financially ruin a person for years, even for life in the U.S. 
Meanwhile, millions of Europeans who have been living in pandemic conditions for even longer than Americans don't have to worry about what medical treatment will end up costing them should they need to spend several days in a hospital with COVID-19. The only reason Americans still struggle with medical bills and medical debt is the greed of wealthy capitalists who control our society. We can afford universal health care just as we can afford to raise the minimum wage and the unemployment benefit rate enough to wipe out poverty and financial insecurity. But our capitalist overlords refuse to do it because they care more about maximizing their own obscene wealth. If the COVID-19 pandemic isn't enough to make working and poverty class women all over the world realize that capitalism must be eliminated, I don't know what could be. We don't know yet just how far-reaching the economic impact of this pandemic will be. It's possible we're already in a depression, one that will last well beyond this year. If all it took to bring our economy to its knees in a couple months was a single, natural event, then obviously the capitalist system must be thrown out. Money isn't the only problem area the 2020 pandemic has highlighted. Heterosexual women living with boyfriends and husbands around the world have experienced a rise in domestic violence during the COVID-19 quarantine period. And women who were being physically abused by their men prior to lockdown have obviously been trapped with their abusers 24-7 since lockdown restrictions have been in effect. Say whatever you want about the stress of our COVID-19 world, but it is not possible for a genuinely non-abusive, harmless man to become physically abusive toward his wife or girlfriend in a matter of weeks, simply because he can't leave home. The men who started abusing their female sexual partners after quarantine began were never the good or nice guys that they and their wives or girlfriends would have you believe they are. Quarantine conditions have simply exposed who these first-time male offenders really are, and we can only hope that when quarantine is over, their wives and girlfriends seek out the support of family, friends, and shelters they need to leave the men for good. Granted, cutting ties with the male sexual partner you live with may not be as easy now as it was a few months ago. To go back to the economic consequences of the pandemic, at least one reason abused women are continuing to stay with their male abusers is financial hardship. Women who are now unemployed or furloughed without pay or whose hours have been reduced to part-time may find themselves even more financially dependent on their men than they were before. This should serve as a warning to all heterosexual and bisexual women. If you can avoid financial dependence or even interdependence with a male sexual partner, you should. Meanwhile, women who live alone and who have been observing stay-at-home orders faithfully for the last two or three months have undoubtedly been feeling the mental and emotional effects of so much isolation. Without daily face-to-face -face human interaction, without positive touch, and without much to do while cooped up alone, some of these women have been experiencing quarantine as a psychological challenge. While living alone in quarantine is a temporary condition, the mental and emotional toll of it still matters. It is women living alone during the shutdown of public society who understand the most how important community and friendship are to female well-being. We can all learn this lesson as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, even if we haven't been living alone through it. As women, we are strongest mentally and emotionally when we are connected to each other. And the internet is not enough. It's easy to get wrapped up in all the darkness of the world, in our own inner darkness, when we're physically isolated. We need to be with other women, with other feminists, for those of us who are feminist, in the flesh. When we're together face to face, it's easier to access hope, to think and see clearly, 
to recover from hardship and to feel that our lives have meaning and value. The women who have been living alone during pandemic quarantine will rejoin public life with a greater appreciation for the simple pleasure and comfort of their female friends, female family members, and female lovers. I hope all women do. That concludes WLRN's 50th edition podcast on the social impacts of the pandemic on women. Thank you to our guests this month, Diane Fisher and Vaishnavi Sundar, for their time and insights on the topic. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in to another edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News. This is April No, signing off till next time. WLRN is always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, transcribe podcasts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. If you are interested in joining our team, go to our WordPress site and click on the Volunteer tab. I'm Dana Vitaloshova. Thanks for listening. And I am Thistle Patterson. Tune in next month when we will focus our program on women and climate change. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, July 2nd. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interview are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN WordPress site. Stay strong in the struggle, and thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the Donate button. Check out our merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation as well. Thanks for your support as we keep on keeping on as your radical feminist grassroots community radio station. This is Julia Beck. Stay strong in the struggle. WLRN wants to acknowledge the recent deaths of Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Black American citizens who were murdered by white cops and, in the case of Arbery, white civilians. The death of George Floyd on Monday, May 25th, has led to nationwide protests and demonstrations against police brutality and racist state violence, and we stand with those protesters. State violence against Black Americans must come to an end by any means necessary. I'm Sekhmet Shiaul, signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, and SoundCloud, in addition to our WordPress site. And this is Jenna DeQuarto, WLRN sound producer and engineer. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. We would love to hear from you, so please comment, like, and share widely. for the patriarchal kiss how will we find what needs to be shown and then after that where is home tell me where is my home cause gender hurts